Welcome to the WSL Kit Room Podcast. I'm co-host Matt Lewis. I'm co-host Elizabeth Lewis, and we'll be bringing you news, reviews and interviews from the world of women's football. We're going to start today's show with a talk through this week's results. So we've got some midweek matches and some weekend matches to talk about. So on Wednesday, the 10th of February 2021, we had Aston Villa versus Birmingham City, match postponed due to frozen pitch. Chelsea 3, Arsenal 0. Brighton and Hove Albion 1, West Ham 0. Bristol City and Spurs postponed due to a frozen pitch. So only two out of four matches played on Wednesday. What does that do to the league, Ellie? The standout match of that day would be Chelsea 3, Arsenal 0. It was important for Chelsea to get back to winning ways after a loss earlier in the week to Brighton and Hove Albion. It was especially important for Chelsea's title retention considering Man City are closing the gap and Brighton and Hove Albion continuing their winning streak against West Ham is very good signs for them. And we're going to come back to those two postponed matches a little bit later on. But then on Friday the 12th of February we had the Manchester derby, Manchester City 3, Man United 0. Another important win for Manchester City moving ahead of their Manchester rivals by one point with a game in hand and closing in on Chelsea in the top spot. And then Sunday the 14th of February we've had Aston Villa against Arsenal postponed again for a frozen pitch. Reading 1, Everton 1 and Bristol 0, Chelsea 5. Both matches played on Sunday were important ones. Reading versus Everton is the battle for fifth place. So a draw is probably expected considering how closely they are in competition but it will make however this will make the matches coming up for both sides important to see who can finish in the fifth spot Bristol Chelsea was a preview for the Conti Cup final which will be played later this month Chelsea were the expected winners and they did win pretty clearly but they did win 9-0 at the start of the season, so Bristol are going in the right direction. And each episode we're going to bring you a spotlight match that we've watched and we'll give you our thoughts on. This week we went for Reading and Everton, given its importance to the league, although obviously it didn't turn out to be the highest scoring match of the week's fixtures. We've each gone for a, a prediction before the match and a half-time prediction as well, as well as offering our commentary and thoughts on the match overall. So I went for a 2-1 win for Everton at the start of this match. I went for a 1-1 draw. And I think the 1-1 draw was looking likely fairly early on, or maybe even 0-0, because they were cancelling each other out for big parts of the first half. Reading were very fluid in possession, but Everton managed to cancel that out by being very organised off the ball. I think it was clear to see the differences in approach and tactics that they were using. Everton very much lined up in their clear 4-4-2 and those banks were obvious whenever they were defending um, Reading much more fluid as you say much more direct in their attacking and those but those two seemed to cancel each other out and it looked like we were heading for a bit of a stalemate in the first quarter of the match Reading's aggressive nature in the beginning of the match did pay off when about 25 minutes in they got a free kick where they were really unlucky not to score there was good goal line defending from Finnegan uh, which ended up leading to a corner, which they didn't score from, but it was good pressure on the goal. 
And I think in balance against that, Reading were looking in danger of overplaying their way out from the back and giving the ball away to Everton far too easily. Um, and I think it highlighted how much they focus and rely on Jess Fishlock in midfield. Fishlock would always come back for the goal kick and try and they'd try and play that out and play forward. I think this could be something to do with the, the height difference in midfield, with Everton having the likes of Jill Scott and Abby Lee Stringer to Reading's Jess Fishlock and Rachel Rowe. But when the first goal came on 35 minutes, it was Rachel Rowe who managed to get the ball in the back of the net. Uh, it came once again from direct play. Eichland running straight into the box from the left-hand side. She had a bit of a heavy touch, which took it away from her. Uh, Everton cleared, but not very well. Uh, so Woodham managed to get a good cross back in. It seemed to not quite know what was happening, and it ba- bounced off Carter a little bit before Rachel Rowe fired into an empty net. And I think initially, immediately after the goal... Reading seemed really fired up. They were really pushing hard and Everton didn't seem to move out of their slightly cautious building approach to react to Reading taking the lead. Everton had a couple of chances on the break, but they didn't want to seem to send bodies forward. And then they'd wait until more players moved up. And after that, they'd move the ball backwards and start building again in their fashion. So the first half ended 1-0 to Reading and it looked very much like the pressure was on Everton to make a change at half-time and do something different in the second half. So if we look at our half-time analysis, Ellie, what did you make of the game at half-time? I thought it was a deserved lead for Reading. They pressed a lot more. They looked much more threatening in the box and around the box. And I think Everton were just a bit too reserved. What did you think at half-time? I think I very much agreed. Everton looked really, really organised and were playing with slow build-up. But not looking like they were ever really worrying Reading's goalkeeper. Reading, on the other hand, probably had less of the ball, but used it a lot better, seemed much more incisive, were very quick from the back to the front, in spite of the issues that I saw with them playing out from the back. I think as much as Reading uh, were heavily reliant on Jess Fishlock, Jill Scott seemed to be really marshalling the, the Everton midfield for me. And if she could get a grip on the team, she seemed like the best route to a, an improved second half to me. So at halftime, I was going for a final score of 2-1 for Reading in a kind of reversal from my pre-match prediction, thinking that perhaps Everton would come out in the second half and manage to get equal, but then Reading looked far more dangerous and more likely to snatch one before the end. I agreed. I thought it was going to be 2-1 Reading. I thought Everton would come out from halftime. Maybe Willie Kirk had said something in the dressing room. They'd press, get a goal early on, but Reading would take control again. And I think we both... Felt like we were right when the second half started and Everton seemed to come out much more full of energy and pressing a lot harder. Straight away, the the wings were used a lot more of Everton. Uh, Alicia Lehman uh, running up the right wing many times. And I think as the second half went on, one of the features of Reading's game that we really picked up on was their set plays. Uh, it's been a staple of Reading's play in pretty much every match. They won 2-0 against Man United and both of their goals came from set plays so it's obviously something they've worked on and I really like how their set plays differ most times. Reading's defensive abilities were shown much more in the beginning of the second half because of how much pressure Everton were putting on them. And that pressure was paying dividends in that Reading was still losing possession trying to play out from the back a lot more than they really ought to have. They did redeem themselves when they lost it 
very quickly getting back and putting their bodies between the ball and the goal. Feels like inviting unnecessary pressure though, doesn't it? A job you didn't need to do that you've created for yourself. But I think as the second half went on, there were quite a series of really good chances for Everton and it felt like they were really knocking on Reading's door and looking for that equaliser that we both thought was coming. At 77 minutes, it did. Mo Vold putting a good cross in and Sorensen with a free header at the back post. And Everton, again, Everton seemed really buoyed by drawing level um, and, and looked like they were going to kick on and perhaps try and get that second goal. And we did get a little flurry of activity, you know, as, as you do when it's 1-1 as the final whistle begins to approach. But some of that pressure seemed to be coming much more effectively from Reading. Before that goal, we were talking about how Everton just needed to put some crosses into the box, try and get ahead on the ball. They seemed to be overplaying it outside the box and no one really wanted to take a shot. It's one of those moments where you feel like you're sending the players like psychic waves because we were begging them just to put some crosses in there. Everton's play up until the final third was solid, but then they kind of lost their way in the, the final third and didn't really look like threatening Reading's goal. And just as we're complaining about that, they pop in a really good cross and get a great goal from it. Towards the closing minutes, Reading were pushing really well at 87 minutes. They had a shot from outside the area, straight at the keeper though. And then again at 93, Cooper almost wins it for Reading, going just wide of the post. And with five minutes of added time, it felt like Reading were the ones who were really, really pressing for that win, while Everton felt a little bit more like they were hanging on to the point that they'd managed to claw back. But at the final whistle, it was one all, uh, honours even, and a point each in that all-important fifth-place battle in the league. Um, So how did you feel about the match at full-time, Ellie? I think it was a deserved final score. It was a game of halves. Reading were good in the first half. Everton were better in the second half. If one team had been consistent through both halves, I'm pretty sure one of them would have won it. I agree as well. I thought it was a, a fair result based on the match overall. Everton couldn't really handle Reading when they were pressing forward and and being really effective on the attack, uh, especially in the first half. Although Everton were well organised, they just couldn't deal with the pressure. And the second half was kind of a reversal of that, where Everton's organisation began to overwhelm Reading and either side could really have grabbed a late winner. Uh, So who would you give player of the match to for this? For me, it would be Bartrip from Reading. I feel like neither team's attacking players were standout. However, Everton in the second half had many more shots and balls going into the area. And I think Bartrip dealt with the pressure incredibly well. I went for Jill Scott. I felt like the same, you know, neither team had a really standout player who shone, but I felt like Everton's midfield worked their way back into the game through organisation and that Jill Scott was really central to that marshalling of the midfield and the organisation that was going on. She put in a really good shift uh, and so I went for her as my player of the match. So what's all of that done to the league table, Ellie? Chelsea remain top with 38 points after 15 matches. Man City close behind though, 33 points on 14 matches. The battle for a Champions League spot could get interesting as Man United sit in third with 32 points on 15 matches but Arsenal with two games in hand have 23 points and still have Man United to play. Everton after that fifth place competition do sit in fifth with 13 games played and 19 points. Reading sit on the same amount of points but they have played two games more. Brighton and Hove Albion sitting in the middle of the table 15 points after 15 games. Tottenham Hotspur under them Probably a little bit disappointed with where they're sitting in the table with 12 points after 12 games. 
Birmingham City on 11 points after 11 games. Aston Villa in 10th with 10 points after 12 games. West Ham in 11th with 8 points after 13 games. And Bristol City sit at the bottom with 6 points after 14 games. And it's only one team get relegated from the WSL, so it's really just Bristol City who need to be upping their game uh, and knocking on West Ham's door to get themselves out of trouble. Yes, it is just one team that will get relegated. However, I do think it is very tight at the bottom and all teams who are down there should be focused on playing their best football from now on. And it's the top three who will make it into the Women's Champions League spots for next season. Um, So the Man United-Arsenal tussle for third and fourth is becoming key and Man United have the upper hand at the moment but Arsenal have those games in hand because they've had a couple of matches postponed that they've got to catch up with which could make all of the difference to that third place spot. Absolutely. Before this season, it was the top two teams who would play in Champions League. So last season, Chelsea and Manchester City took those spots. So adding that third Champions League spot has added a much more interesting battle at the top of the table. For Arsenal to catch up with Man United, they need to win both their games in hand and beat Manchester United when they play them at home on the 18th of March. Arsenal's postponed matches have come against Aston Villa and West Ham who are 10th and 11th in the league. While that may be a sign that they should be easy wins, this league has been extremely competitive this year, as seen by Brighton and Hove Albion beating Chelsea. So Arsenal's upcoming fixtures are Birmingham City on the 7th of March. However, there is a possibility that they could be playing their postponed game against West Ham a little bit earlier than that. And then they'll play Manchester United on the 18th of March, which could be an important decider for the Champions League space. After the Arsenal-Manchester United match, Arsenal will be playing Tottenham Hotspur on the 28th of March, and on the same day, Manchester United will be playing West Ham. So Man United are maybe not quite as comfortable in that third spot at the moment as the table would make it look like they are, and Arsenal really have the opportunity to make up that ground with those games that they've got in hand and the upcoming match against Man United. So that that Arsenal-Man United match on the 18th of March could be really crunch for the the third place final Champions League spot. It's really all in Arsenal's hands though. They have to win matches and Manchester United have to lose matches. And the one thing for Arsenal this season is scoring goals hasn't been a problem. No, absolutely not. Arsenal have one of the highest rates of goal scoring in the league. They haven't been short on goals. It's possibly just defensively that they're having issues, whether that's starting in the front line if they're trying to high press and leaving spaces or whether injuries have plagued their back line. It should be an interesting second half and run into the end of the season with everything really to play for at the top and the bottom of the table. Absolutely. Each episode we're going to look at some of the issues that are affecting the women's game at the moment for good or for ill. And we'll try and offer our thoughts on ways out of some of the problems or how to make the most of some of the opportunities. And so the issue that we're going to talk about today is the recent rash of postponements of matches, which has really caused a bit of a problem for the game, for the league, and potentially for the image of the game as well. Yes, the WSL is trying to brand itself as the best league in the world. However, with as many postponements as there are, it's hard to see them getting that title. The most interesting thing about football is watching it. So if it's being postponed every week, there were three this week, 
hard to see how the WSL can become the best in the world. It's a tricky issue to deal with, though, especially when we were watching and discussing the highlights from the, the match in Germany where they played on a completely snow-laden, frozen pitch with just the lines cleared, but it didn't look like the best conditions to go ahead with the match. No, absolutely not. We've seen games postponed because of frozen pitches here, and I do think that while they're playing on pitches that are continuing to be frozen, postponing the games are the best course of action. The Wolfsburg versus Potsdam game that happened in Germany with a very snowy pitch, I feel was just dangerous and unfair, really. There was no way that playing on that much snow allowed the players to play the best football that they could. Now, parts of it look much more like an ice skating tournament than a football match. But I guess then the question is, how does the WSL get out of this problem of frozen pitches? Obviously, in the men's game, the, the stadiums have undersoil heating to deal with these problems, but the women's facilities are a way off from that at the moment. So how do they deal with this problem of having to postpone matches quite reasonably for frozen pitches? At the moment, undersoil heating probably seems like too much of an investment for clubs. However, the Birmingham City-Aston Villa match was called off five minutes before kickoff for a frozen pitch, which is unacceptable, especially considering it was later revealed that the decision could have been made to move pitches to one with undersoil heating for less than £500. Which doesn't seem like a lot for the match to have been able to go ahead, even if you allow for the fact that investing in undersoil heating is out of the, the reach of a lot of women's clubs at the moment. Surely that kind of money for the game to go ahead is within the reach of football clubs. Um, in particular for an important match like the Second City Derby. Absolutely, for the image of the game, that was probably an important match that, that had lots of reasons people could have wanted to watch it. Um, so it's a shame that it couldn't go ahead. I guess the obvious question is why don't they use the men's football stadiums and the men's grounds with all of the facilities that are already in place there? I'm not 100% sure. Uh, Reading do play in their men's stadium. I understand that it's hard to change locations especially to a bigger stadium on short notice because of the extra staff they would need and the bubbles due to coronavirus that everyone is in but Reading have managed to play all home games this season in their men's stadium and in my opinion this comes down to the higher-ups in the club valuing their women's team. Yeah perhaps says a lot about what clubs think of their women's team and how much they value them especially when you look at teams like Liverpool obviously the men's team flying as they are and the women's team relegated last season down to the second tier of women's football there's a real disparity there when a, a championship club like Reading are clearly investing in their women's team and allowing them to play at the men's ground and this kind of has an impact on the ability of the WSL to progress and to expand the league yes it's always more interesting to watch competitive matches when there's such a disparity at the top and the bottom of the table and you go into matches knowing who's going to win, it just makes the games a little bit more boring. And difficult as well when they think the WSL is considering expanding the number of teams currently in the league when you're having to postpone matches in the middle of the season, which you've then got to catch up on, which can have a knock-on effect to, to congested fixtures or extending the season. Um, it means that probably increasing the number of teams in the league isn't a viable option at the moment, even if it's what the WSL wants to do. Chelsea at the moment have a very congested run of fixtures. They're in Champions League. They've got the Conti Cup final coming up. 
they had a couple games postponed. Chelsea are able to deal with this because they have great depth in their squad. But in the lower league sides, where it doesn't seem they're being as invested into and they can't buy as many players, it seems a bit unfair to move this congestion towards the summer. It's going to impact on tournaments that summer. If there's Euros, World Cups, Olympics going on uh, and players are coming out of the domestic season tired from a congested fixture list at the end of the season, it potentially impacts their ability to be competitive at tournaments. And I mean, we've already seen the interim England manager saying that possibly game postponements has influenced her selection, uh, with some players missing out due to not getting game time. And I guess it also affects the development of the game in the sense that the WSL is working hard to sell TV rights and to get the matches more widely broadcasted and with the additional revenue that that would bring but this kind of gives people pause for thought because if the games aren't going to go ahead what do you do with that slot on your tv channel whether you're sky or bt sports or bbc this happened earlier in the year with bbc and bt they both had games postponed that should have been shown and when it's been announced that the wsl is trying to negotiate a tv deal with possibly sky sports and bbc it doesn't put them in a very good negotiating position because TV channels will want the games to go ahead. Like fans do and reporters who are at the matches and all of those kinds of things as well. You know, it's potentially letting an awful lot of people down. But I guess if I was playing devil's advocate, I'd say the women's game is where the men's game was maybe several decades ago before the introduction of undersoil heating and all of those kinds of things. And is it unreasonable to expect the women's game to leapfrog and bypass all of those developments that the men's games had to go through and kind of get to the the end point more quickly is that unreasonable does that detract from the development of the game i think it, it possibly would other than the fact that the women's game was effectively banned for 70 years so they may deserve just being leapfrogged a little bit and i also don't think it's unfair because this is helping with the safety of players when they're training for a match on one day and they've warmed up for this match beforehand, it isn't then good for them to not play that match. So yeah, I guess it's a little bit of a chicken and egg situation, isn't it, where the game needs to develop so that TV companies can have confidence in buying the rights that the games will go ahead and they'll have a product to sell, but you can't get that investment from the TV companies until you're in a position to make sure the matches go ahead. So what comes first, the TV rights or the undersoil heating and improved facilities to make sure that the games happen. It's a really difficult one to deal with at the moment. I guess you might be looking at some of the men's clubs and thinking, could you help? Could you let them use your ground that already has all of these facilities? Could you improve their facilities? But then maybe the men's teams have their own problems and issues that they need to be dealing with, particularly at the moment, as everyone else in the world does. So I'm, I'm not sure what the answer is to this one. I think investment is the correct word because you're not going to get the best out of the women's game without funneling money in first. Fair comment and a challenge to WSL clubs everywhere. This part of the show is where we would normally talk about the upcoming fixtures next week, but the WSL is moving into the international break now for uh, almost two weeks. The Lionesses have one game against Northern Ireland, but there's a very busy international schedule going on with lots of WSL players appearing for their countries and also the She Believes Cup going on. So what have we got to look forward to in the next couple of weeks of women's football? England versus Northern Ireland will be the 23rd of February at 12.30pm. Which Elizabeth is very annoyed about. 
if anyone from the FA is listening. I will unfortunately be in lesson at that time, so I can't watch that. Switzerland will be facing France on the 20th and the 23rd of February, both at 10 past 8pm. A little bit closer to home, Scotland will be facing Cyprus and Portugal for their remaining Euro qualifiers, which they unfortunately cannot qualify for, but they will be facing Cyprus on the 19th of February at 1pm and Portugal on the 23rd of February at 10 past 3pm. Those are difficult fixtures for Scotland, I guess. They already can't qualify, but they have to go into these games looking for something. So do they use them as training exercises or do they really put their competitive heads on and try and get the best results they can from those last two fixtures? It's also very interesting considering Shelley Kerr recently stepped down. So they've got an interim head coach. So what will they want to do? Belgium, the Netherlands and Germany will all be facing each other in a mini tournament to help their bid for the 2027 Women's World Cup. Then we have all the She Believes fixtures. This is a tournament that obviously England used to take part in, but we pulled out last year. So this year it will be between Brazil, Argentina, the USA and Canada. The first match will be Brazil versus Argentina on the 18th of February at 9pm UK time followed by the USA versus Canada at midnight on the 19th of February. Then the USA will face Brazil on the 21st of February at 8pm. Then Canada will face Argentina on the 21st of February at 11pm. The next match will be Canada versus Brazil on the 24th of February at 9pm. And the last match will be the USA versus Argentina on the 25th of February at midnight. And that's a competition that the Lionesses won in 2019, right? Yes, we did win it. We had an unfortunate run last year. But the 2019 run was good for our confidence before the World Cup. So this could be a good warm-up for the Olympics, should they go ahead. So it's a busy international schedule to look forward to there. Plenty of matches for everyone to catch. And there are several places that you can usually catch your WSL and women's football matches. The FA player is a very good place to get all the WSL action as well as Lionesses action. They also post videos of player interviews. And the FA Player app allows you to watch matches for free in the UK. The WSL Twitter account usually posts before matches where you can watch them anywhere in the world if you do not live in the UK. And there's also some matches on BT Sports and they're occasionally on the iPlayer and very occasionally far too infrequently on BBC's terrestrial channels as well. And just to say that this is not an exhaustive list of international fixtures, so if there is a country that we haven't mentioned, they might be playing. Our plan for future episodes is to try and get to interview some players and some managers and perhaps even some pundits. So if anybody is listening to the podcast who fancies coming on as a guest, please give us a shout on social media. We'd be more than happy to welcome you on. In the absence of a guest this week, we're kind of going to discuss a a second topic which is prevalent in the news, unfortunately, and not just in the women's game of football at the moment, and that's racism, particularly against players. And I think we both come at this from a position that there is just no excuse for racism ever and every form of racism and every incident of it is abhorrent. We sit here as two white people who have never really experienced any of that racism but disgusted that players have to put up with that in the modern age. This is an issue that spans the men's and women's game, unfortunately. Obviously, everyone would hope that this wouldn't be an issue in either game, 
but recently in the media we have seen that is becoming increasingly common. And I think it used to be something that, you know, on the terraces in men's football matches in the 80s, you occasionally came across this kind of thing. I went to Wolves matches fairly infrequently in the 80s and stood on the South Bank and I have to say it's not something I ever came across or was aware of, but it was around in those days at football matches. And I guess I have to be a little bit careful about what I say here because it's not something that affects me in my everyday life. But it felt like it got better and then perhaps the rise of social media has seen it driven back to the forefront, perhaps by the anonymity that social media can give to some of the people who are willing to make these kind of cowardly comments hidden behind an anonymous Twitter handle. I think it's a mix of the anonymity and that social media companies at the moment do not seem to be cracking down on this racist abuse, even though so many footballers are now coming out and saying, look what happens in my comments every time I have a bad game. And it should be easy to criticise a footballer for how they played in a certain game without bringing anything else into it. I find this difficult because I've never felt the urge to go on social media and tell a footballer that I think they've had a bad day. <laughs> yeah, it's difficult. I think neither of us watch football or sports or in our everyday lives, really. We don't go around criticising people for what they do. But I think a lot of footballers would probably say that they would accept criticism that they've had a bad game. They made a bad pass or a bad cross or a bad tackle to give away a penalty or they should have scored an easy chance. But to, to make that point, you don't have to bring the colour of their skin into it. In the women's game, Lauren James was the most recent player to receive racist abuse. And she said in an article that she was a bit confused about it uh, because she hasn't played in a couple of weeks. So whether it's just because her brother is Reese James, whether it's moving from the men's game over to the women's. And there are a lot of other aspects of fans from the men's game that we may not want to bring into the women's game while it's still developing. Yeah, I think the Lauren James stuff is, is fairly insidious because, like you say, she hadn't been playing when she got this abuse, but up until that point, she'd be, actually been playing well. She was having a good season and then she missed a few matches and all of a sudden starts getting racist abuse when she's not even playing, which really just goes to show that detachment between the racism and the attitude of the people sending that abuse it just shows how detached that is from people's performances on the pitch. It's not really to do with their football. It's just an excuse to be racist to a public figure of colour who becomes an easy target because they're active on social media and you can get at them, which is a disgusting attitude to have, I think. Absolutely. There's, there is no excuse. So that's it for today. Thank you very much for joining us on the WSL Kit Room. I've been Matt Lewis. And I've been Elizabeth Lewis, and we hope you'll join us next time for more news and analysis on the world of women's football.